Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. In this episode of Who's Your Data, we go global. I talked to serial entrepreneur and growth strategy expert Kristen Luck, who has started multiple marketing technology companies and is currently the president of ISOMAR, a global association of market research companies that promotes data ethics and protection. We discuss her experience using data to grow and scale companies, her vision for SOMR during her tenure, what it means to think about data ethics on a global scale, and tackling diversity through sensitivity to cultural differences around the world. We talk about Women in Research, the nonprofit organization Kristen founded to promote women in, well, research. And we discuss the trend of brands diving into social activism, and finally, some great advice Kristen has for women starting out in the industry. So let's get to the interview. So hello, Kristen Luck. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for having me on today. Sure thing. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm really excited about uh, talking to you today. And I am reminded, by the way, I don't know if you remember this, but the first time that we met, and I have to tell the story because it haunts me to this day. Um, <laughs> picture this, California, myself, the CEO of my company and the senior vice president of, of uh, enterprise sales are doing a bunch of meetings with clients in California. And you join us as a consultant to these meetings. And in the very first meeting that we have, We've never, I've never seen you before, but we all sit down at the table. And as the SVP starts going into the pitch, I immediately fall asleep in the meeting and you're trying to kick me under the table to wake me up, which I thought was very team spirited of you. <laughs> I was like, I think he probably wants to be awake for this meeting. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. It was, it was, it was, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you did that. But then cut to, I think it was a year later, we're presenting on stage at IIAS talking about machine learning and market research methodologies. So it was a happy ending. All's well that ends it, well. It was, and you nailed it. And you stayed awake the entire presentation. So. I did manage to stay awake. That, that is very good. You did. <laughs> so, my first question that I ask everybody, because I'm really interested uh, about this whole year of COVID, is there anything that you learned about yourself during COVID that surprised you? There were a few things that I knew for sure going into it that were terrifying. And then a few things that surprised me. So the thing that was terrifying about it was that I knew that I am a horrible homemaker. I have no cooking skills and no real practical skills for living life because I travel so much hey. and... I eat out a lot and I'm really good friends with my toaster oven. I, you know, if there's, I believe that there's actually a whole cookbook written on toaster oven cooking that is probably like created particularly for somebody like me. So that, you know, that was, that was disturbing when I first went into it because I also live out in rural Oregon on a p pretty big piece of property that does not have have services like Grubhub or Uber Eats. Yeah. There's none there's none of that. Yeah. In fact, when the pandemic first hit, I was actually overseas. I was I was at my home in Athens, Greece. Oh wow. And I decided I made the decision to come back to the US because I was concerned that my parents might get ill and then I would be overseas and it would be tough to to get back. So I did come home. The thing that's been surprising about it, I think, is that I've actually really enjoyed it. I don't think I realized how tired I was from the nonstop travel. Yeah. It was a chance and to just kind of hunker down and, and, and reset. 
Yeah. And I'm, I think what a lot of people don't know about me is that I'm actually pretty naturally introverted. And so for me, the pandemic has, has been slightly heavenly. I, I live on 60 acres out in the woods. I have worked from home for years when I, Mm -hmm. when I haven't been traveling. And so for me, it's, it's just been a really great time to a be more productive than ever learn a lot of new skills. And when I say skills, I don't mean work skills. I mean, like how to, how to actually feed myself, which you would think I would have important skill. Yeah. You'd think I would have figured that out by the age of 48, but maybe not. Yeah. There's been, there's been more good than bad with it for me. That's good. That's great. That is, you know, that's a big blessing. And I also being one that relies a lot on those uh, food service apps in, you know, in Hell's Kitchen in New York, where you don't even really have a kitchen that's equipped to to cook for yourself and to sustain yourself. I realized, yeah, I, one thing that surprised me was how annoyed I was that they could no longer come to my door, but I actually had to go down to the lobby to get the food. (laughs) But um, I talked myself out of that one. Uptown problems. Yes. Uptown problems. (laughs) Exactly. So Kristen, I've heard you described as a growth hacker based on data-driven strategies for businesses. And my first question to you is, what on earth does that mean? And how does one become a growth hack? Yeah, I think I think growth hacking was a term that was coined a kind of right when I was going into consulting. So Gilad, you know, most of my background, which is that I've, I've spent nearly 25 years in the market research industry, building full service market research firms that are primarily technology firms. So data collection platforms, data reporting and visualization platforms. And mm-hmm. so I had a, had a really strong data foundation when I sold my last company and decided to segue into consulting. When I did decide to go into consulting, I, I took a very hard look at the things that I really enjoyed doing and that I was good at. Because I think that's the intersection of like really, truly enjoying your work. One of the things I realized very quickly was that it wasn't the starting of companies that I loved so much. It was the scaling and the growing of companies. And yeah, and all of the barriers and challenges that come along with that. Uh, And I thought, gosh, if I could just work with CEOs all day and they could learn from all the many, many, many mistakes that I made along the way when I was growing my companies, that 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 would be the, the, the most rewarding work that I could do. And around the time that I launched that company, there's a guy, Sean Ellis, who, who had kind of coined this term growth hacking. And so I think it's, it kind of stuck with my consulting firm for the, for the first year or two. But what I will say is that there are no hacks to growth. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's strategies and generally you know, it, within my my arsenal of what I work with, there's generally ten or eleven paths to growth, and mm. what what path to growth you use is dependent on where the company is in its life cycle, what challenges it has, what what the organizational structure is like. So there's a lot of variables that come into defining what will ultimately make a company position to to grow. And, and each one of those is, is unique to those companies. Do you find that there are certain industries or verticals that are, that you work better with, or that these strategies fit better for, or do you think that these are general strategies that could work for any industry? 
Uh, I think they work for any industry. I tend to work mostly in marketing technology and services because that's where my background is. And so I, I just naturally have more connections there and I tend to get referred around a lot because of course I've got, you know, good chops as a serial entrepreneur in that, in that space. But my business partner and I also work in emerging consumer packaged goods. So kind of all the crazy new products like kombucha and protein powders made out of crickets. And uh, we also work in cannabis. So cannabis and cannabis ancillary. We're both based in Oregon. I have to tell you, it's in a really exciting market for data. If you're, if you're a data lover, that Mm -hmm. is like the wild west of data. Do do tell. Yeah. It's really fascinating. So I, I was sitting on the board of a, a cannabis edibles company in Bend called Lunchbox Alchemy. They've, they've since been sold to a big Canadian public company called Slang. Okay. But in the first meeting, uh, and I, you know, I grew up in Oregon with very liberal parents, pot smoking hippies. Mm-hmm. I'm not, you know, like I'm not out of that. I, I wouldn't say like I'm out of touch with the cannabis industry at all, although it's not something that that I personally enjoy in my own life. Mm-hmm. But w- we were in this board meeting. It's a bunch of new board members and everyone has to go around one by one and sort of talk about briefly about how cannabis has changed their life. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, yeah. they, and I'm sitting next to this guy in a suit, you know, who looks kind of like a banker and they get around to me and I, I just, I mean, there were some really amazing stories along the way. And I, being an overachiever, wanted to have an amazing story about cannabis, but really <laughs> couldn't think of one. And so when it, it got to me, I, I just said, I think one of the most exciting things about this category is that it isn't a category where there's a natural data infrastructure or where people have been historically collecting a lot of data. And and now that it's been legalized and it's selling in dispensaries and there's sort of this 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 revenue chain that you can track so you can see point of purchase data and you can have a better understanding of how people are buying and consuming different cannabis products. Now there's all these firms popping up like BDS analytics. And I just, I just found it incredibly fascinating. And then of course the, the next person over turned, you know, later, I don't know, a year or so later turned out to be my business partner, Mike Pisani, who's also an investment banker. And he basically said the same thing as me, which is like, hey, we're here for the data. Like, we're the nerds in the room here for the mm-hmm. data. But it is, it is a really exciting vertical if, you're, if you love data. And I think there's a lot of opportunities to improve on how data is reported on and, and used, particularly as it relates to predictive analytics and also modeling out which groups are most likely to buy in the future. At one meeting, there was this kind of like big aha, and it, it actually came from a salesperson that worked in Southern California. And he came in and he said, yeah, it's so interesting. Like I spent the whole day at this dispensary in Palm Springs, and I was the youngest person that ever came in there. You know, And he was probably in his late 40s, early mm-hmm. 50s. And I think there's this, this misnomer that cannabis users are young and right you know, versus like for a lot of companies, you know, when you look at the ability to spend, how much they're spending on product, what they're willing to spend, you would be better off in many cases targeting an older demographic, which is not what people think of. It's not a cheap product. 
No, and it's Certainly heavily taxed, I mean, which is why it's expensive. So yes, yes, I, I agree, and I that makes perfect sense. You can actually build predictive analytics, so it's definitely a, an interesting growth industry. Uh, it is, huh? No pun intended. No pun intended. <laughs> Kristen, you've recently been elected as president of ESOMAR, which I think is very exciting. Um, but can you talk a little bit about the organization and what your vision for it is during your tenure? Sure. So ESOMAR is the market research industry's biggest global association. So we represent companies, companies and individuals all over the world and lobby quite heavily globally for data ethics, data protection, and the ability to conduct research in, in ethical and sustainable ways. I ran, yeah, I've been on council, which is the, the board of SMR for six years now. And so, so yeah, so I decided to run for president. I'm actually only the third female president oh, wow. in 74 years. And wow. the first non-European president. SMR started out as a European association many, many years ago and then pivoted to become a global association uh, before I became a member, which was about 11 years ago. So it's been an interesting time to take over the association because obviously we're, we're coming out of a pandemic, which hit some folks in the, in the industry very, very hard and in some countries. Uh, much more heavily than than others. And I'm really focused on two areas. As you can imagine, since I do growth strategy for a living, I'm very much focused on the growth of the association. How do we bring new people in that align with us from an ethical standpoint, but maybe are working with data in different ways than traditional market researchers do. And so when I say that, I say, you know, data as a service companies, you know, much like distillery is, or data scientists, that's a big vertical for us. We're looking at CX and UX users. We're looking at really trying to re-engage with qualitative researchers who I think in, at, in many cases have felt like SMR wasn't a great home for them over the last couple of years because there's so much focus on quantitative data and, and with good reason in a lot of ways in, you know, in defense of that strategy roughly 85% of all research spend in the world is quantitative. And so as you can imagine, qualitative oftentimes gets overlooked, not only by associations, but also by investors and business owners. And that's still a significant piece of our business. If you look at 15% of an $80 billion industry, that's still a lot of revenue. And so we need to create a better home for those, for those researchers. And then most importantly, from a growth perspective, is that we're bringing up the next generation of researchers, whether those are data scientists or analysts or right. folks in data as a service companies. They need to, to understand the importance of data ethics and, and how we work with data as an industry. But they're also, you know, we have to create a sustainable future for them. Targeting millennials, that's always a good uh, growth strategy, right? It is. It is. Or Gen Z now. Or Gen so, Z, yes. Gen Z, yeah, even younger, yeah. So that's that's one of the, the key pillars of my platform. And then the second is just access and engagement. So how do we make our content more accessible globally? One of the challenges that SMR has had is that the European branding, although we became a global association many years ago, the E in SMR did originally stand for European and the bulk of the membership is European. So how can we expand globally and how, how can we create access, better access for people by expanding into providing content and speaking opportunities in more languages? 
So I think about myself, for instance, like I, I'm pretty much just an English speaker. I, I mm-hmm. can speak some, some Greek. I wouldn't ever do a business presentation in <laughs> Greek. How much good content we're probably missing out on because people don't feel comfortable presenting in a second language. Mm-hmm. How many great good papers point. are we missing out on? And so how do we make our programs and services more accessible? Uh, and I think that's, that's a part, a big part of our uh, diversity and inclusion initiatives that we run and making sure that our programs and services are really equitable, that, you know, that people have equal access to them. Now, you mentioned, uh, you know, as you said, SMR is active in advocating and, and protecting the market research industry. And I know I read through advising legislators and lobbying and around data privacy and data ethics. And so specifically around data ethics, what do you think will ultimately drive ethical data use? Yeah, this is a big topic for me. And I've written, I've written and blogged about it quite a bit. I, I, you know, one of the one, I mean, I think we've kind of got like three, you know, three different issues when it comes to ethical data use. The first, obviously, is like the creation of ethical systems, you know, around AI and, and how we're creating new products and services, particularly that are that are AI driven. That's a huge issue. Yeah, that's a big thing. Um, now with a lot of visibility. Yeah, it's a big issue. And I think I think that people don't understand that AI can literally be used to to weaponize populations, you know, everything from eye tracking to classing people into segments that might not necessarily fit for them, like gender or ethnicity or sexual orientation. You know, we, we really just have to make sure that the systems and technology we develop are unbiased and ethically designed. I think the second component of it is we really have to be working together to ensure that data ethics and research quality standards are upheld globally. And, and this is why I think close collaboration and sharing of best practices between associations, and that, that means both local and global, as well as acknowledging cultural differences is so important. And I think that's been really challenging this last year with the pandemic, with so many borders being closed. And I think we're subjected more to homogeneity now than we ever have been, be, just because people aren't traveling as much and you know we're congregating with people that are in our direct vicinity, which means they're likely more like us, you know, than if we were traveling or interacting with, with other cultures. So that's mm-hmm. a, that's a big issue. Lastly, and I think this is a, a controversial one that I think a lot of business owners don't enjoy hearing is that we need to make sure that our business models aren't driving unethical behaviors. Oh, interesting. Can you, can you give an example? Yeah, well, okay, so I'll give an example. Um, Full service research firms, for instance, when I first started out in research in the mid 90s, the bulk of the revenue from a research project came from data collection. Mm-hmm. Well, now data collection has really been democratized in a lot of ways. There's so many DIY platforms, there's so many other ways of collecting data, there's second and third party data sources. And so when traditional business models don't adapt and research pricing becomes a race to the bottom, then we see firms adopting unethical recruiting and other research practices mm-hmm. that further deteriorate research quality, and they really endanger our reputation as an industry. I think the other thing that's changed a lot since I started out in research, and I've been in this business for almost 25 years now, is that when I started my first company, which was back in 1998, there really wasn't a whole lot of private equity and venture capital money coming into this space. Now, if you look at most of the market research news going on, 
three quarters of it is mergers, acquisitions, companies right. buying and selling, mostly private equity firms doing a lot of the selling or, or strategic companies that are privately backed by, you know, by PE firms. And so that also changes how, how we prioritize, you know, analytics versus data collection. Because when you look at where most of the money is going in this industry, it's going toward platforms and they put less focus right. on where the real value is in research, which is in the design and the, uh, and the analytics, which is a, a thinking behavior that can't necessarily be automated. <laughs> you put it together in my mind for me because I've seen where venture capitalists are on at first glance, it seems that they are getting more savvy about data and requirements when they're talking to companies, but it is true that it's more about the data collection and the fact that you have a lot of it and they don't stress as much the, the element of, okay, what do you do with it? And what is your, right, what is your intellectual property? And what is it that you really do with it that is the special sauce that makes you different? It's all about the data collection. Yeah. I think the, the, the other thing that's concerning though, too, is that then on the, the inverse of that is that you see a bunch of full service market research firms not focusing on what they're really good at, which is the design and analytics, and instead trying to custom develop some technology platform that they think is ultimately going to increase their valuation. There's plenty of opportunities to, 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 to monetize services-based companies. I think there's this misnomer that you have to have a tech product in order to get a high valuation. That's not true, actually. I think what, what investors and buyers are looking for are things that full-service firms are completely capable of creating. They're looking for recurring revenue streams, which you can absolutely create from services-based businesses. Right. They're looking for low customer concentration. So, you know, do you have a broad swath of customers and, you know, are you too reliant on any, any one customer? Like, these are the things that investors look for, you know, do you have a strong EBITDA? Like, are you profitable? There's right. a, there's, there's a lot of factors that go into how companies are valued. And it's interesting because I think a lot, a lot of full service research firms, they look at the, the, the big boys, like the generalists, like the Cantars, yeah. the Nielsen's, the Ipsos, like those are generalists. They're huge, huge companies. And you can't compete with them. No. And, you know, the, frankly, like those companies generally don't have a whole lot of organic growth anyway. They're growing primarily through acquisition. Right. Yeah. But sometimes this is hard to, for people to wrap their heads around. But I think there's this misnomer that if you take on any kind of work at all, that your business will grow at a faster pace. But I actually find the opposite to be true. The more defined you get about who your ideal client is, the types of research that you're really good at, then clients know what to call you for. And you get more of that business and you get, and you also get a lot of referrals because people are pleased with your work and you're not kind of heading 15 different directions, trying to be all things to all people. So one of the things that you had mentioned when we talked about, you know, your tenure at SMR in terms of now coming in after COVID and kind of figuring out the new dynamics, where to take the organization. And I would love your thoughts on something that I've been thinking about in terms of exactly these real world events that have been going on and trends and how they affect the way that we collect data, measure it, and how we think about it and what we do with it for research. And for example, and just specifically brands that are wading deeper into activism, like we saw in Georgia, Coca-Cola and Delta. Do you think that that is, first of all, a passing trend? Do you think that this is something that's going to become more endemic into the way that brands, uh, I, I mean, I assume that this came from 
obviously market research that they know that this is who their consumer, you know, this is how their consumers feel. Um, and so they are going with a trend of trying to work for their consumers. But do you think this is something that's going to get bigger? Do you think it's a passing trend? Do you think it's going to get global? I think there's two types of companies. I mean, I think that there's companies that it's it, it's just an inherent part of who they are as a company. It's in their ethos. Like if you look at a company like Patagonia, for instance, I don't think that Patagonia, frankly, did a lot of research on whether or not their customer base was going to align with a lot of their political beliefs. Those were the political beliefs of the of the founder, and he believed that people should, you know, we should protect wild spaces, and and also that there, you know, you don't need to buy a new jacket every six months that you can repair the one you have, or you can buy a used one. Or what they realized is that that really resonated with their con- consumer base. You know, it's been exponentially huge for them in terms of how their their brand has grown and evolved and they become more and more politically outspoken because of it which i think is a is a mm-hmm. good thing i mean obviously like my political views align with patagonia's and so i you know i live in i live in oregon where we really do value the outdoors and outdoor spaces and we want those protected and so that you know i think they were probably one of the first kind of leaders in terms of brands really taking a stand. Of course, there's more research done now around what is going to resonate with with their target audiences, but you also see brands making major missteps, you know, like that Pepsi commercial with Kendall Jenner. Oh my god, yes. Oh. I mean, it was a huge misstep, you know, and and just so tone deaf and I think that's where brands run into trouble, which is you can do all the research you want, but if you're not coming at it from a place of authenticity and you're not using creative teams that are diverse. Yes, exactly. That, that right there. Yeah. So, you know, we, you see all of these campaigns around, oh yeah, we need to make more brands that are friendly to women or to people of color. But then you look at the creative teams at the agency and was it like less than 10% of creative directors are, are female and it's even smaller that are, that are people of color. So you can't expect that you're going to get the type of creative that's going to resonate with an audience when the people creating it do not represent those people. So that's, right. that's the first challenge. Yeah. That, that's a very good point. And I can't help but think that if, if Pepsi had had at least one person of color on that team, that it had gone through, they would have said, what are you doing? Like, yeah. is, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah. I think the, the other challenge too is for global brands because what social activism is in one country is not necessarily what it is in another. And there are also some, some countries that are more progressive than others. There's a lot of cultural nuances that go into social issues in, in different countries. And I'll, you know, I'll give an example. When I was campaigning for SMR president, obviously I, one of my passion projects is, is a nonprofit that I started back in 2007 called Women in Research. I've done a ton of work around, you know, diversity and, and raising the voices of women in the research industry and providing more opportunities for women. And since then, we've kind of broadened our remit. So now we also have Wire and Color and we're, fo- you know, we're focused on broader diversity issues than just gender. However, when I was campaigning in Latin America, I remember a woman said to me, I'm really surprised to see that you're not actually campaigning on gender equality because it's a huge problem Mm -hmm. 
here in Latin America, and it feels like it's been forgotten here. And then, you know, the truth of the matter is that gender diversity is still a huge problem in the U.S. We just have a more active presence in right. the U.S. And 100% the, diverse, the gender diversity gap and the issues that women have to deal with in Latin America are vastly different than they are in the, in the U.S. And so we need to be sensitive to the fact that Although we might feel we have success or we've accomplished something in one market, it doesn't necessarily mean the same for other markets. And I think the same thing goes for brands. Yeah, that's that's very true. And I, I also thought about it. The principles mean different things, but I do feel like there is a little bit of a subjectiveness around it that even, you know, American brands and the standards that they're held to in terms of social activism in the U.S. is different than, let's say, with their dealings in China, right? I'm not saying Disney, I'm not saying Nike, I'm saying, you know, companies <laughs> like that where the, the standards are different for their, their business in different parts of the world. And they don't get enough flack for that, or maybe they do, but I just think it's interesting that it's different depending on where you are. For sure. And I go back to Patagonia again. I think that they, again, that because it's part of their ethos as a company, they've taken a very hard look at their entire supply chain, how they make products, how they source them globally. You know, they have really ensured that they're not just speaking to one audience, but then acting in a different way in a, in a different market. And I think that that's an important thing that brands have to have to keep in mind. The one thing also I do want to say, though, the one gripe I have with Patagonia and what you said about it with them saying that, you know, you don't need to buy a jacket every six months. As my ex will tell you, I have a problem with jackets. I've never met a jacket I didn't like. And I will buy a jacket <laughs> every time I see one that I like. I have absolutely no self-control. So I'm sorry, Patagonia. <laughs> So Kristen, you mentioned Women in Research, which is an organization that you founded. It's a global nonprofit working to raise the voice and contribution of women in the research industry. Can you talk a little bit about what the impetus was to create it? Yeah, it, was, it came across actually just by happenstance. I mean, it, I had a friend that had moved from from San Francisco in, into Los Angeles, where I was working at the time. I remember having a conversation with her and she said, gosh, I'm, she, because she was in a senior stage of her career, as was I, she said, you know, I work almost exclusively with men. I almost never connect with other female executives. Can you introduce me to any other women that are running businesses or are in C-level positions? And I said, well, of course I can. I know I've worked in LA for many, many years. And so I literally just kind of opened my email address book and invited every woman that I could think of that I knew in LA out for cocktails one night. I think maybe we had 40, 40 or 50 women show up for the first one. And then we had such a good time that we were like, oh, we should do this like every, every quarter or I think if we, first we started it every month, then it went to every quarter. And from there, it just kind of spread. We had a woman that then moved to New York and wanted to host cocktail get togethers there. And then she went to London. This is Cassandra Rowe, who's at, at Pinterest now. And then she went to London, then she went to San Francisco. So that kind of helped, you know, expand the, the yeah. group. Oh, that's and amazing. then, yeah. And so it started out very informal. It's just like cocktails and chit chat. It wasn't, it, you know, it wasn't what it was today. And then, probably eight years ago is when I really formalized it. So I went out and I got our nonprofit status over 501c3. Uh, We started doing a mentoring program where we match 
senior level women and men with women who are in the early stages of their career and need some, some help and, and, a, and a leg up. And when I, when I say mentoring, I, what I really mean is we're trying to connect people who, who can be champions for these women within Mm-hmm. their organizations are within the industry who are going to recommend them for roles and, you know, help them navigate the, the industry and get, get their next big break. So we run events, we run close to, I think, 28 events annually. Now, globally, we've got over 12,000 men and oh, wow. women involved in the community. So it's a big, it's a big group. It's absolutely free to join. We didn't want to have any barriers for people not participating in the program. And again, because we're focused a lot on women in the early stages of their career. And then a couple of years ago, we launched a a forum for for female executives called Wire Exec, which are all female founders or C-level executives Mm -hmm. in the industry. So we run an annual summit uh, in Napa and then one in London and the UK so that we've got three or four days where these women really get to connect and talk about business issues and collaborate. And we've got think over a hundred women in that program. Wow. That's amazing. And the fact that you, that it's like you said, that there's no uh, fee to join, I think really helps with the access, um, equal access to different populations so that it's not a barrier. For sure. Yeah, for sure. And we've been really lucky too. We, we, we started partnering with the SMR foundation a few years ago to start providing scholarships for women in emerging or conflict markets. So since then, I think we've awarded, six or seven different scholarships to women in Sri Lanka, Kenya, Guatemala, the Philippines, you know, we're really not, we're not just talking about it. Like we're walking the walk. We're, we're sponsoring and bringing up the next generation of of female leaders in this industry. So speaking of the next generation, what would your advice be to women that are starting out in the research industry? And what do you wish that you would have known when you started? Oh boy, that's a tough one. Uh, well, I think my advice for people who are just starting out is to try lots of different things and see what what interests you and what you gravitate toward. I think that the folks that I know that are the most successful and certainly where I've been the most successful in my career is where I found that intersection of what I really love doing and what I'm actually good at. So if I can, you know, and my career has been through you know, so many twists and turns, you know, I started out as, you know, field manager for data collection, then I was an analyst, and then I, I was an operations exec, and then I was in product development, and then I was in strategy, and then I started another business, and, you know, was this was the CEO of the company, and then I segued into sales and marketing. I mean, I've tried everything as it, as it turns out. I think it's good to try a lot of different things and also realize that as you, as you age and get more experience, that, that your interests might, might change. And I would say that the one piece of advice that I, would give, uh, that I would give to women about career advancement is understand that there's a difference between doing research and the business of research. True. One of the things that I never learned because I didn't go to business school, I started out working in a research company what no one ever told me and what I didn't understand for a very long time in my career was that there comes a point where if you want to move into an executive management position, that's a business role. That's not a research role any, anymore. You're not really doing like, I haven't done research in years 
because I've been running businesses, but that's really different than actually conducting research. And there's not a whole lot of training for it in our industry. And that is a program that we launched at WIRE this last year. It's open to men and women, but it is a, it's a 12 month business skills training program that you can take online. And we host all of our content there at all virtual classes run by industry leaders that walk you through everything from you know, sort of how to, how to define your, your key interests and what you're interested in to how to you know, read a P&L and how to manage a business, you know, how to write a business plan. And uh, I think these are all fundamental skills that we aren't typically taught as researchers. And again, if you didn't go to business school like me, you wouldn't have learned it right. any other way. So Kristen, where can people find you if they want to follow you or learn more about SMR or Women in Research? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kristen Luck. So two eyes and Kristen. Uh, you can find me on my website, which is scalehouse.consulting. And I'm also active on, on Twitter. And if you want to learn more about women in research, the, the URL is super simple. It's womeninresearch.org. And SMR is smr.org. And the SMR URL is esomar.org. Kristen, thank you so, so much. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm really glad we got a chance to catch up. Yes. Thanks so much for having me. I'm glad that I was captivating enough to keep you awake during the entire chat. Well, I I could feel the kicking (laughs) under the table. So it worked this time, even though it's through Zoom. Yes, the virtual kick. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to who'syourdatanow at gmail.com. That's who'syourdatanow, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data?